Hello everyone, and welcome to the first mini-episode of Balkwell's Books, the audio program. I have discovered that some books are smaller than others, and accordingly, some books' episodes should be smaller than other books' episodes. Thus, I have conceived of the idea for miniature episodes or mini-episodes, as I have chosen to call them, in which I will cover books for which I don't really wish to go through the entire process of making a full episode for whatever reason. In this case, it's because the book is quite short, but that's not necessarily going to be the case. Just about books that don't capture me and engage me in the way that makes me want to write a very long script and then record it and do all that sort of stuff. But books about which I have a few ideas that I'd like to share, the first of which is going to be, and is, C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, published in 1945. Now you have probably heard of C.S. Lewis, or at the very least you've heard of his most famous series of books, The Chronicles of Narnia which is a series of fantasy books primarily aimed at children that uh, you may have read when you were young, or perhaps when you were slightly less young. And if you were slightly less young, or maybe old, when you first encountered these books, or if you're rereading them at a later age, uh, you, it will be more readily apparent to you the Christian symbolism and imagery uh, and often explicit allegory present in those books. You will not be surprised to find that C.S. Lewis has a, a strong interest in Christian theology, and that this is present in, well, all the books of his that I've encountered, which is not all of them. But you will not be surprised to find that C.S. Lewis has written other books that are Christian allegories. Now, the Chronicles of Narnia, being aimed at children, has a distinct pedagogical function. You know, not of course they are works of fiction and imagination, but it's uh, quite clear that aiming them at children, he wishes to impart certain values, uh, certain Christian values, and introduce the reader to certain Christian concepts or imagery that will perhaps help them understand um, concepts that they might learn about later when they're, when they're growing up um, and pursuing their religious studies or religious journeys or, or whatnot. This book is definitely not directed at children, much more directed towards adults or the more mature reader, I suppose. However, that pedagogical function uh, still remains, and obviously uh, that function is present in, in almost any work that you can consider to be allegory. I mean, allegories are trying to present ideas. However, this book is, is quite explicit in its pedagogy, <laughs> pedagogy, I suppose, um, and in fact that is uh, related to many of the criticisms I have with this book. However, before we get to the criticisms, which I'll introduce later, it's important that I introduce what the book actually is. So, The, the Great Divorce, 
The title for The Great Divorce is a response or reference to William Blake's book of poetry, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. And in fact, that's how I uh, found out about The Great Divorce, is, is I read the, the Marriage of Heaven and Hell and found out I was interested in, in this book because it was a response to William Blake. Now, I didn't really understand William Blake's The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. Um, William Blake's poetry is uh, can be quite difficult. Is, uh, some of his symbols are pretty clear and explicit. Others are a lot more ambiguous, and the relationships between his sort of symbolic characters and their interactions can be difficult to parse for a first-time reader, of which uh, every reader must be at least once, and uh, which I was when I read it the first time. And in C.S. Lewis's introduction to this book, The Great Divorce, he also admits that he does not feel that he has a clear understanding of William Blake's The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. However, he uh, has has enough of an idea that he wishes to respond to what he considers central in that book, and it's pretty clear from the title what that means. William Blake's The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, the sort of philosophy behind that work, is an attempt to explore sort of good and evil and the sort of benefits, I guess, of both, how they can both come together um, in a way that is uh, necessary, I suppose, for human life or human striving, that, you know, being mere opposites, they both contribute in a way, I suppose. I, I guess I'm re revealing how little I, I, I understood that book, perhaps, but that's sort of the impression there. And then C.S. Lewis here with The Great Divorce is saying, uh, I don't think good and evil should be married. <laughs> you know, he thinks maybe they should stay separate. Maybe they're not good for each other after all. And that uh, good would be much better off uh, if they split up. You know, took some time apart, took a break at the very least. And uh, maybe good could, could learn some things about itself and realize that it didn't need evil after all. So that's sort of the uh, idea behind the marriage of, sorry, the, the great divorce. The book is introduced as a, an account of a dream that C.S. Lewis had. So in no way is this meant to be, um, I mean, this is kind of obvious, but it's not a literal uh, depiction of what he thinks heaven and hell are really like. It's, it's a parable, you know. He is trying to uh, create an image that uh, presents the relationship between heaven and hell, but not necessarily the literal, um, uh, literal description of what the afterlife is like. And obviously parable is, is key to Christian uh, theology or just Christianity in general. Parables are uh, a very... There's a, there's a well, uh, well-worn tradition of parable, you could say, and so that's the tradition that C.S. Lewis is jumping into with this book. So, what is heaven and hell in The Great Divorce? Well, let's begin with hell, because this is where the book begins. In The Great Divorce, when people die, they, if they uh, aren't 
you know, super good, they'll go to hell. But this hell is not sort of a torturous, terrible, dark, and, and dismal sort of place. There's no uh, demons torturing people. There's no fire and brimstone and etc. Instead, it's uh, just very dull. It sort of reminds one of the Greek conception of the afterlife, where, you know, you're still the same sort of person. You're going around. You can eat all the food that you had before. You can have all these experiences, but nothing feels quite as good. You know, the food tastes a bit bland, and all the sensations are a little bit deadened. This seems to be similar to what uh, C.S. Lewis is presenting us with this hell. When you die, you everyone, when they die, is put in the same location in hell. And hell is this large, sort of dismal, gray, London-esque sort of city. And there, after you die, you have sort of these... You have the ability to create materials out of nothing. You can just imagine materials. You can make yourself a little house. You can, you know, make yourself food and all these sort of things. And so people have built up this city over the course of human existence. The thing is, though, nobody's really that happy to be in hell, and everyone is just a little bit on edge. They're all quite irritable, and they, they don't get along with each other very well. And thus, people generally move further and further away from the spot where they began. So people, they made this city, and then they're living on a street, and they hate all the people who live on the street. So one by one, they move further and further away into the sort of wastelands of hell. And these wastelands are infinite. You can go millions and billions of miles away from where you began. And some people have done that. And uh, in fact, he specifically names Napoleon, which I don't know why. He, that's like the one person he talks about. He mentions that Napoleon has secluded himself very, very far away from the initial starting area and he lives in this big house by himself and just walks around grumbling all the time. So this um, this location where everyone begins is a bus stop. And this bus, there's only one bus at the bus stop, and it takes you to heaven. Anybody at any point, uh, anyone who lives in hell, can get on this bus and go to heaven if they want. Um, it's free, you know, no fare, no nothing, just get on, off you go. So C.S. Lewis begins his story on this bus, and he is there not as a dead person, but as a man in a dream. And most people on the bus are not going to heaven um, permanently, or at least that's not their intention. Their intention is to go to heaven on a visit and see what it's like. They're quite comfortable, I guess, relatively comfortable in hell. It's familiar to the way that they lived their lives, perhaps. It's, um, you know, it's a, it's a comfortable sort of place. It's not nice. It's not, you know, super good. It's uh, annoying, and they don't like anyone else there, but that's everyone else's fault, you know. They, um, they, they still think that there's some, some value to existing in this, in this weird gray city, but they'd like to go to heaven just to see what it's like. And this bus is a sort of magic school bus-esque bus that can fly and uh, also change 
size. So as it flies away from hell, it gets bigger and bigger because we find out hell is minuscule compared to heaven. Although it's infinite in space and all these people can live there, it can fit inside a, a blade of grass or, you know, one cell of a blade of grass in heaven. Heaven is huge. And so as they approach heaven, the bus and all the people inside of it expands and, and takes on heavenly proportions. The When you get to heaven as a non uh resident, I suppose, uh, an alien in heaven, uh, you exist sort of as a as a phantom, as a, as a sort of ghost. It's very difficult for one to interact with the things in heaven. Heaven is a large plain of, of grass, and there's trees and little forests and streams and etc., and a large hill um, leading off into the horizon. However, as a non-heavenly being, this grass is... Um, almost immovable, like it is so heavy and, and dense that just walking through it actually uh, bruises your, your shins, you know, as you try to, to walk through it. And um, you can't pick anything up. You can't pick up the rocks from the ground because they're they're too heavy. And if you were to get in the water, it would sort of batter and, and bruise you. The, you know, these calm running streams, you you can't even put your water in your. You couldn't even put your foot into the water. It's so uh, powerful, and you are so weak. And over the course of time, if you if you remain in heaven, you will over the course of time become uh, more used to this, I suppose, or you will grow in power such that you can uh, interact in heaven and and you know be normal and walk through grass like a normal person would. So C.S. Lewis and his bus um, make it to heaven. And the core uh, sort of, the, the core of this book is C.S. Lewis witnessing a series of conversations between visitors to heaven and heavenly beings. Now, heaven is somewhat similar to hell in this scenario where everyone starts at the same place, but it expands infinitely. However, the difference is that the further away you get from the starting place, the closer you are getting to God. So as you stay and you journey over the hill, you are reaching closer, a closer and closer relationship with God and, and godliness. However, while the main sort of, I guess, motive of everybody there is to head off and, and go towards God, Many people come back to the bus stop in order to meet their loved ones who have come up on the bus and to try to convince them, to kind of bring them into the fold of heavenly joy and heavenly bliss. And the, so the conversations between these visitors on the bus and their loved ones who have come all the way back in their, in their grace to try to uh, convince these sort of uh, these visitors to, to stay in heaven. These, these conversations, uh, these dialogues are, are what we witness um, over the course of the book. And this is where we approach one of my, or my main issue with this book. Obviously, this book is going to be somewhat preachy. I mean, it's a, it's a sermon, essentially, you know, it's a, it's a Christian parable. So of course it's going to preach and I have no problem with that and I 
um, have no interest really in attacking C.S. Lewis's religious beliefs. I'm not personally a Christian, however, I'm, I've read a lot of books about Christianity, both religious and secular. I've read the Bible, and I, I would not consider myself ignorant in any way of uh, Christian ideas and Christian values, and I have no problem with that. The problem I have with this book is that as a sermon, as an attempt at preaching, I think it is severely flawed and um, does, does absolutely nothing. Um, for someone like me reading this, someone who is uh, perfectly open to Christian ideas, this book is more likely to push one away than it is to bring someone into the fold. And the reason for this is a severe condescension on the part of the narrator and on the part of C.S. Lewis in constructing these characters and these dialogues they present. These conversations are not very effective because the heavenly beings cannot understand the visitors. And the reason they cannot understand these visitors is because they, in their sort of divine grace, in their um, virtue as a heavenly being and being so used to heaven, they can't really even see or attempt to understand the problems that these visitors have. So I'll give you maybe a couple of inter uh, examples. And before I get to these specific examples, I just want to say the characterization in this book, it's very poor. Um, the, the visitors are caricatures. They don't really sound like real people, and they are incredibly annoying on purpose. You know, they are not characterized in a sympathetic way. It is very mean-spirited, um, in my view. They, they do not come across well. And so we have this man who is an academic man. Um, in his life, he was a scholar of sorts. He liked to learn and discuss and come up with ideas and share them with the world and have all sorts of conversations and, and things like this. And he continues to do the same in hell. He has certain beliefs or certain ideas. He is part of a sort of discussion group in hell with like-minded individuals, however they disagree greatly, and he wants to share knowledge with the people in hell. He wants to discuss ideas. I've said that a million times, but there's not much depth to this character, and that's why I'm repeating myself. Now, his heavenly interlocutor comes to him and says, well, what? why do you need to discuss ideas? If you come to heaven, you'll just know everything. God will provide you with absolute knowledge. There's no reason to discuss. There's no reason to have conflict with other scholars, you'll just know things. And the academic man says, somewhat reasonably, that sounds really boring. <laughs> you know, uh, if there's no discussion, there's no individuality, no individual ideas. And the interlocutor says, of course there's no individual ideas, because when you're here, you know the truth. And the truth is heavenly goodness and absolute knowledge. Now, Obviously, I have a certain amount of sympathy with this academic man as a person who likes ideas, sharing my ideas, and discussing um, 
concepts with people, uh, I have a certain sympathy. I don't have sympathy with the way he's presented in the book because he's meant to sound like an uh, egoistic jerk. However, the response of the heavenly being is not quite satisfactory. And this is more the case in the next example, <clears throat> which I think is the most telling example in the novel. So in this case, we are witnessing a conversation between a, uh, a mother and this, uh, or this woman who had a son. She had a, a son who died uh, quite young, and she was uh, quite put out by this. And she spent the rest of her life grieving for this son. And she, she gave up on all her other relationships. She had no interest in life because... Uh, she had lost her child, and it had uh, hurt her very, very greatly. And this is a perfectly understandable thing for almost anyone in the world. You know, you lose someone who you care about very deeply, and uh, it can be very difficult to uh, recover from that, if, if it's even possible to recover from such a loss. What the angel, or not angel, the, the sort of... Uh, resident of heaven tells her is that this love of hers is is not a pure love that it is an obsessive and egoistic sort of love that it is a all an all too human sort of love and that by giving her love primarily to her child um she has ignored her responsibilities towards loving others and in the view of the heavenly being, which we can take to be the view of the author, a proper love is a love that is given via a love for God. So one loves God, and by loving God, one comes to love all of God's creations. Now this is nice in theory, but this is quite an abstract form of love, and might be quite unfamiliar to most people who have experienced love in the world. Yes, in a general sense, it does seem possible to love humanity as a concept or love humanity as a whole, as, a, as an interesting sort of creation or an interesting being that has come to exist. However, such an abstract sort of love is not particularly conducive to, act to action, you know. To actually love someone fully, you must, to a certain extent, love them as an individual. Yes, there are charitable things you can do for people you don't know, but um, in my view, real loving action um, has to be somewhat focused. You know, otherwise it's very difficult to carry out. And in Christianity, we have a sort of ideal of this, or we, or Christians have an ideal of this, which is, of course, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has the ability to love everybody, you know, as an individual and as a part of the whole of humanity. That's sort of his superpower. That's why he's such an important figure. And that's why he's an ideal for people to strive towards. However, this is an ideal for a reason. It's not exactly possible to do so as a regular person. And we see that in his story, in Jesus' story, which we all know, that such a love seems incompatible with, <clears throat> with the material world, with the world as it is. 
and perhaps incompatible with uh, humanity in general. So this idea of a pure and unindividualized love is all well and nice. However, it doesn't it's it's very difficult for people to actually understand. You know, it's very difficult for people to internalize in a meaningful manner. And I think that this sort of strict um, adherence to such a love is overly, perhaps overly ambitious, or at least overly strict, because I don't think C.S. Lewis um, expresses such a love throughout this book. I must say again, this book is very mean-spirited, and I have the feeling that many of the characters in this book are based on people that C.S. Lewis has known or heard of that he severely disapproves of. There is a large sensation of disapproval in the tone of this novel, and I get the sense that C.S. Lewis is quite bitter, and that this book, it's presented as a dream, it's presented as a parable, however you get the feeling that the book is looking down, that the book is taking the perspective of the heavenly beings and looking down on the people of this earth, which in my view is a sort of haughty way. Uh, I don't like it. You know, this book left a very bad taste in my mouth for that reason. Now, there are certain aspects of this book that I do respect, and um, I do sort of agree with, I suppose. I think his presentation of heaven is quite interesting. This absolute knowledge, this sort of perfection that in, in heaven, um, love is everywhere. Love is sort of like air is here. Just everything is perfection and love. However, I don't really get that sense from the way that the heavenly beings actually speak. They don't seem to have a real sort of love. They seem to have a condescending for, form of love. And they don't seem to attempt to reach the people they're talking to where they actually are. <clears throat> Instead, choosing to admonish them for being where they are. And that's where this book fails as a uh, form of preaching or as a form of sermon. If you want to convince people, you should meet them where they are. And you should try to bring them with you. However, if you present yourself as higher and you are simply admonishing them as some sort of authority, um, this doesn't work. At least for someone like me, this does not work at all and leaves a very bitter taste in my mouth. And I think it's a book that instead of spreading love, spreads bitterness. I, I felt worse after reading this book. I felt um, like someone had just been very rude to a large amount of people in my presence, and I can sort of imagine C.S. Lewis riding around in a bus in the city and looking at all the people and uh, disapproving, you know, the, thinking that they don't reach his standards and um, that he must show them the way, you know, and uh, I, I don't like that very much. That That's not very, that's not something I, that's not the type of attitude that, that I appreciate, you know. So I think in that way, as a sermon, um, I, I don't consider this book particularly successful. And there are many works that I've read that uh, present Christianity and Christian values <clears throat> in ways that I find very agreeable, <clears throat> and in ways that um, I consider quite convincing. And um, 
very respectable. This book uh, I would not categorize as such. And I believe that's the main point I wanted to make about this book. And I, I don't like this um, exclusivity, this exclusive uh, form of thinking where there is a certain group of people that are correct and a certain group of people that are um, not worthy. You know, I think most people are trying their best, and this book does not recognize that at all. There are certain concepts in this book. I mean, the fact that anyone in hell can at any moment get on the bus and ride up to heaven is wonderful. I think this sort of uh, idea of atonement and forgiveness even after death is, is quite amazing. You know, I think that's a, a great idea, and I think very fitting. Um, however, that spirit of forgiveness uh, does not come across for me in the rest of this book, and I consider that in my view, I consider that a great failure of the novel. So that's all I have to say about C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. I hope I've explained myself in a way um, that is understandable. And um, I've been thinking about this book a lot since I read it and uh, trying to come to terms with the, the feeling it left me with. And I, I hope I've explained that uh, well in, over the course of this show. That has been the first miniature episode of Balkwell's books. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. If you're interested in more of my writings about lit literature sometimes and sometimes about other things, um, you can visit my website at balkwell.substack.com. That's Balkwell spelled in the same way as the title of this podcast and also the title of the YouTube channel that you can check out where this podcast is also hosted. Um, that's all I gotta say, and uh, thank you. Uh, goodbye. <laughs>